Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters. And since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 479 of COVID Calls, March 16th, 2022. And the topic is disaster memory. I'm going to start actually before I introduce my guest. I'm going to start by reading an essay that I wrote on April 15th, 2020. And actually, this was uh, part of episode number 23, but I thought it might be relevant to some of the issues we're going to talk about today in terms of disaster memory. So I wrote this April 15th of that year. The difference in the death totals from yesterday, April 14th to today, is 1,846. That number stood out to me. I knew that number and I looked it up. There it was. The recorded number of deaths in Hurricane Katrina was 1,836, 10 fewer than the COVID-19 toll from yesterday. Why is my mind full of these numbers? Because I study disasters, and disasters have for a long time, and certainly since we've entered the era of the modern state, been recorded in death tallies and dollar counts. With COVID-19, the performance of the Dow Jones Industrial Average has emerged as a key number day by day. But if one takes an even cursory look behind the numbers, we find the errors in our counting, the arbitrary time frames drawn around the period of counting, the innumerable problems of comorbidities, and the new issues we seem to be facing with COVID-19, people being clinically diagnosed in some countries like South Korea and Singapore, allowing a more accurate picture of the disaster versus countries like the United States where the counting is proceeding in fits and starts unevenly across the nation. As I've come to say as a shorthand, as a shorthand the count is never the real count. This isn't a new problem. One of the darkest moments in Stanley Kubrick's Cold War masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove, is the impassioned speech that George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson makes for a full-out atomic attack against the Soviet Union, predicting acceptable losses for the United States, 10 to 20 million killed, tops, he says. The optimism of it, the dark humor and irrationality of it, has reminded me of the wild to and fro of predictions in the United States, from a somehow acceptable 60,000 deaths to a less acceptable 100,000 deaths to a cataclysmic 2 million deaths. These were all predictions that have been made in the middle of April. What realities exist between those numbers? I've started to think we should move past such measures to begin thinking to measure trauma instead, or maybe fear. Old war racked up huge totals in fear or to turn it inside out, we could perhaps even come up with a measurement of care. How much care is generated and expended around a disaster? Here I look to the work of Robert Soden to help me make sense of this problem. How do we think about risk, what's acceptable and what isn't? How do we drag what we learn from one era of disasters into another and who is making these decisions anyway? I read that essay on April 15th, 2020, and what followed was a conversation with the sociologist Lee Clark. And I hope you'll go back and check out that episode number number 23. But I have with me today 
another really great disaster sociologist, and I'd like to introduce her to you, Christina Simcoe. Christina Simcoe is Associate Professor of Sociology at Williams College. Her research focuses on violent pasts and the complexities that they create for identity and narrative. Her first book, The Politics of Consolation, Memory and the Meaning of September 11, received an honorable mention for the Mary Douglas Prize from the American Sociological Association. In addition to her research on 9-11 memory, Simcoe's published work has examined the legacies of the 1945 atomic bombings, the Equal Justice Initiative's National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Alabama, and ongoing debates about the future of Confederate monuments. Her current book project, tentatively titled Suffering from Reminiscences, examines several memorials and museums to terrorism and their companion museums as windows onto contemporary trauma culture in the United States. Christina Simcoe, it's a real pleasure to bring you to COVID Calls. Thanks so much for having me. Can I find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there? Yes, I am calling in from my office at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And the COVID situation here has, like in many places of the United in the United States, improved significantly of late. So I just checked while I was in the green room or the virtual green room. Um, and we've got, as of this morning, two cases in the last seven days on our institutional COVID dashboard. And that's down from you know, three digits of COVID cases daily um, during the worst part of the Omicron spike in January, where we had a hundred some odd cases in the past seven days for several weeks on end on our very small campus, a little over 2000 students and then several hundred faculty and staff. So uh, I think over a quarter of our students tested positive for COVID during that mm. uh, winter period. Did you stay open throughout uh, because of the residential nature of the college or did you close and go virtual in the worst of things? How did you manage things here? This year or during throughout the duration? Uh, this year. This year we've stayed open. Mm -hmm. We have sort of moved the needle on various restrictions where and when students have to be masked, how often students, faculty, and staff are testing, um, what the restrictions are like in the dining halls, et cetera, whether the dining halls are even open. But uh, we've, we've remained open throughout the duration of this academic year, actually, and, and reopened immediately after the winter holidays. We have a January term, which we call winter study. And I think that started on January 3rd or 4th. And 2020? In 2020, we did shut down. So we went mm -hmm. virtual in mid-March as virtually everyone was, was going virtual. Right. And then we reopened in the fall of 2020, although both students and faculty could elect whether to uh, teach or learn in remote, fully remote or hybrid mode. So we had some students who studied remotely for one semester or for that whole year, and some students, a majority of the students who returned and you know chose not to take a gap year or gap semester um, returned to campus, uh, fairly restricted campus that looked very different from our, our typical mode, but uh, a campus nonetheless. I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this pandemic time. Do you have one that you might be willing to, to explain to us, something that really stands in for this time for you? Yeah. 
I was teaching our anthropology and sociology senior seminar in the spring of 2020. And it was my first time teaching that senior seminar, and it was a class of students with whom I'd grown very close. I arrived at Williams in 2015, and so this was one of the first cohorts that I had really seen all the way through their Williams experience. And again, we're a small campus, and so I come to know people really well. And I remember one of the students in that class sitting in my office, looking at her phone, telling me, and this was a student I had had her first year in, in Sociology 101 and who I was now teaching in senior seminar and who I'd had in a couple of other classes in between. And she said, Middlebury is closing. And this was, I think, the day before Williams decided to go virtual for the rest of the academic year. And, and I think at, at that point, I realized that we were not just losing the rest of the semester, but that these students, these seniors who were so beloved to me, were losing the rituals that give them both closure and celebration on this moment in, in their lives. And I have a lot of memories of losses, losses that I've, I've heard about, losses that people I love have sustained. But some of the memories that are most poignant to me are also losses of the celebrations, uh, losses of odds, you know, the, these moments where students in particular get to rejoice in the odds that they have overcome uh, in their lives and in their families' histories. And I remember walking the next day into the senior seminar or a couple of days later into the senior seminar with the knowledge that we were we were closing down and that this would be the last time that we would convene as a group in person um, and just crying together um, and working through the the shock of that loss. Right. Um, which is not to diminish diminish the very real um, human losses and more significant human losses that we'll, I'm sure, turn to talk about in a minute. But um, it reminds me of how extensive the losses have been and how they can never be fully captured with, with the numbers. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, um, and other, I've talked to others who've shared similar memories. I had high school students on early in the pandemic mm -hmm. who were not going to have graduation um, with family. Yeah. And um, like really smart high school students who understood that it meant a lot to their families. They had a sense of what it meant to their grandparents, you know, and um, even the way you described it, I, maybe somebody's come up for a term with a term for this, but we need one of the kind of explanation you have to give to explain a kind of loss that doesn't involve death, but still matters. Yeah. And we needed that way of speaking in this time. I, I'm not surprised a person who's as, as clued in to the history of uh, ceremony and ritual around trauma mm -hmm. um, was paying a lot of attention in that particular moment. I guess we don't have any rituals to account for that kind of loss, do we? No, I don't, I don't think we do. And I think you even hear the reluctance in my voice to name that sure. loss, right? And, and to call it yeah. grief, because there is a kind of loss and a kind of grief that um, that that makes me feel foolish for even wanting to put a label on the loss of ritual and the loss of ceremony and the loss of celebration, right? But I, I do think that what we feel in that moment is a form of grief, right? And it is made all the more difficult because it isn't named, because it isn't labeled. And when we don't have a name for something, when we don't have a label for something, it makes it really difficult 
both to talk about it and to understand that it is a shared experience and not just um, an individual uh, psychological phenomenon. I feel like we're gonna, we need like a global birthday party day <laughs> just for anybody who missed a birthday party any of those years, let's have it on this day. You know, some, I, although I don't know when you would declare it now. I mean, with Omicron here in South Korea and with what's happening in Hong Kong, we're still not past it, but, but I'm with you and I think we do need that that language and that waves. I mean, we're hu human beings. We're crying out loud. I mean, we can be more complicated than only being sad about death. We should be, and we should talk a lot about that. But these other losses are, they mount up. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. And I wonder too, if <laughs> part of it is, you know, I remember Michelle Obama doing, you know, speaking at the sort of collective graduation in 2020. And that was such a beautiful thing. It was such a wonderful thing. There was actually something I think for a lot of students who graduated in that moment, who graduated without actually getting to walk, who graduated without the ritual and the ceremony, that that felt like it also diminished their experience because all of these people from different places and different institutions with different rituals and traditions and stories were also sharing in that same graduation. And I think there's something um, really special about having those distinctive experiences on the days that that, that are that are designated for them. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is no recapturing that celebration that should have been, right? And it's okay to mourn the loss of that in a really different way than we mourn death, right? Than we mourn losses that are, are final, but in a way that acknowledges something that should have been, but, but wasn't. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today as part of our Restoring Memory series with sociologist Christina Simcoe. Um, and I want to talk about your your book. I want to talk about September 11 because we do have a lot of tools to work with to think about what's possible in this moment for COVID memorial. But I wanted to ask you about a particular moment early in the pandemic. We were chatting just a moment before we got on the call about this. But um, you know the various benchmarks that were put out there, like from that time period. I was reading the essay at the top from April. Um, you know, 100 deaths. 500, you know, increments, arithmetic increments, and then disaster increments. And, and they started to, they started to arrive. And September 11 was, that was a, a headline, national, maybe even international uh, headline that uh, the United States had reached that level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's another piece of that I want to talk to because the 20th anniversary of September 11 was lost in some ways in COVID. But what were you thinking at that moment when September 11 death totals became a sort of way of expressing the gravity of COVID in America. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, and I don't know if this is going to be a satisfying answer, but to be completely honest, I, I don't, I tend to resist thinking in numbers. Uh, I tend to and this isn't necessarily typical for a sociologist, right? Uh, my discipline is one that I think straddles the humanities and the social sciences, or at least I like to think about it as a discipline that straddles the humanities and the social sciences, and that still incorporates a humanistic impulse to think in stories and not only in numbers. And I think with COVID in particular, because I knew so early that we were going to just blow past the 
death counts that have characterized other disasters. The disasters you mentioned, Hurricane Katrina, September 11th, 2001. Um, these other sort of markers in US and world history. I think from the beginning, I wanted to really resist thinking in numbers and to think instead in stories and to try and take in when I could and as much as I could the experiences of people, whether they are students of mine, friends of mine, family members of mine, or people I come to know at a distance um, through the friends and family who write about them you know, in newspapers and magazines and in who speak about them on podcasts and live calls and television news to, to take in as many of those stories as, as I could. And so I, I did note, of course, the headlines about moving past that grim milestone and the headlines about moving past so many others. Um, but of course, I also want to bear in mind all of the losses that those numbers don't capture, both because, as you mentioned, they're, they're undercounts always, um, and because they capture only the losses of lives and not the all of the other losses that come along with the losses of lives, the losses of sort of life, right, a, as yeah. we might describe it. Yeah, I really appreciate that that perspective. And, uh, and that's why I shared that, that essay at the top is that um, I want to push back against that too, but at the same time, the numbers are in there. And I also know that the numbers are contested. The September 11 numbers are, are contested still yeah. Yeah. and uh, 20 years on. Um, but those numbers and that, that marker, September 11 itself as a cultural marker, um, still carries a lot of power mm-hmm. as a way for people to think about a scale of a disaster, even if we don't get bogged down in the, in the actual numerical aspects of it. And, and so I wanted to let me segue from that into some discussion of your of your book and um, the politics of consolation, memory, and the meaning of September 11. And I think the last time actually I saw you, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were on a panel together in the New York State Historical Society, and that was the 10th anniversary of September 11. It probably, it probably was, or shortly, shortly thereafter, I think, because on that same trip, it must have been 2014, because on that oh, same okay. trip, I went to see the 9-11 Museum for the first time when okay. it had just opened. But I, but I think, you know, the 10th anniversary was what we were reckoning with at the time. That's right. That's right. Okay. Thank you for reconstructing that. And, um, but I was, you know, I mean, the work you were doing then was was pathbreaking, and and I'm, I mean, the book is amazing, and everybody should read the book, and it's relevant then, and it's relevant. I think it's, of course, newly relevant now. So maybe though, you could say a little bit about what what you were trying to grapple with in the book, because I think there's some important conceptual terrain that you covered there that is pretty useful to us right now. Sure, thank you. I I started the book as a graduate student, and I started the book as an effort to make sense of contemporary disasters. And I started just immersing myself in the speech making surrounding September 11th, 2001, both the immediate reactions to September 11th from prominent political leaders, and then the political rhetoric and speech making that surrounded September 11th memory. And I thought actually at first that it would be 
the first in a series of case studies on contemporary disasters. I was thinking at the time about the Great Recession and the stock market crash of, of 2008 um, and 2009. And I was thinking about Hurricane Katrina. And then as I, as I read this 9-11 discourse, I realized that it was always shot through with references to the past and that political leaders were oriented toward providing a kind of consolation, ad addressing a lot of the existential questions that we often associate with pastors or the priesthood, and that they did so by drawing connections between past and present. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Often, um, the people who died on September 11th were uh, characterized as analogous to citizen soldiers, uh, references to Lexington and Concord, references especially, um, but not exclusively, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to the history of the Battle of Gettysburg and references to the Gettysburg Address. Um, references to FDR and the Four Freedoms um, and excerpts from his speech making were read at the first anniversary in Lower Manhattan, um, as well as, you know, gestured toward at other sites. And so I became really concerned with instead of comparing contemporary disasters and our response to them with understanding the weight of the past um, and the usefulness of the past in consoling the public in the aftermath of September 11th. And so what I do in the book is to trace the history of two vocabularies for consolation, what I call political consolation. So the first is this dualistic narrative that um, creates a really sharp distinction between good and evil um, and projects that good will always ultimately prevail using these references like the Civil War and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and World War II, which is a huge moment in that, um, in that trajectory. Um, and then the other, which is, I call a minor key in US history, much less prominent, but present nonetheless, is a, a tragic narrative that meditates on the meaning of disaster and crisis without necessarily purporting to resolve our questions. And I think you see the, the tragic thread most prominently in moments like Lincoln's second inaugural and um, uh, the um, some of the reactions to the assassination of um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and and uh, I think that is a really useful resource um, for this moment and a resource that I hoped to bring to light um, in the book because I think it runs counter to um, the the sort of dominant thread in American political consolation discourse. I think you're muted. I've only been doing this for 479 episodes. <laughs> I mean, you know, give me, give me some opportunity. I got to learn. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all of us, right? It's, it's just, it's just a I hallmark know. of the age, right? <laughs> embarrassing. Um, Just to linger on September 11 for a second, and I like the way you 
you know, sort of break out some of the kind of political modes that people and the speech modes, the narrative modes that people got into. Was it possible to have a, a, a minor or a more tragic mode around September 11? Or do you feel like because of the nature of the disaster, that it was so much within a sort of war frame. Now, I interpret it differently. And of course, I've, I've written about it as, as workplace disaster instead of fires that happened in New York, and I'll stand by that. But I'm in the minority of people who interpret that way. It very much got swamped into a war mode. And I'm asking you this because I'm curious about how momentum gets built in these, in these moments. Because it's not just one speech, it's a set of speeches and then media discourse and then public opinion starts to move. I think there are places and spaces where you hear that tragic mode. And I, in response to September 11th in particular, and as somebody who is also in the, in the minority in my response to September 11th, 2001 at a, at a personal level, I wanted to show at an intellectual level that it could have been interpreted otherwise, that the decision to situate September 11th within a war frame was a decision. And we can argue about whether or not that decision was made more or less consciously or more or less implicitly and you know how inevitable it was and how pragmatic it would have been or could have been for politicians to situate it in a different mode, but it was possible. And I think that one thing that scholarship can do is to ask us to dwell in those counterfactual possibilities um, and to dwell in those counterfactual possibilities um, as a way of seeing that not only could it have been otherwise, but that it could be otherwise in the future, that history could unfold differently because history is something that is of our own making, not under circumstances of our choosing, not without pressures, um, not without unintended consequences, of course. But I, I do want us to be able to see those, those possibilities um, and the contingency of that moment, which happened so quickly. And, and the momentum was, was, you know, it came with such force, right? And, and I think that's why September 11th is a case where it's particularly difficult to see that it could be otherwise. But I do think there have been moments, especially at the annual commemorations in mm. Lower Manhattan, um, where there has been actually a prohibition on political speech making. So politicians have occasionally gotten up and read from existing texts, from poetry, from political speech making past, from the Bible, right? Um, mm -hmm. From these texts that provide us with guidance from the past in the present. And I, I would say that not all of these texts, in fact, most of them um, don't fall into this dualistic mode. And so that is a site where I think we can dwell in possibility, especially in the commemorative rituals that have, have taken shape there. I have to say that one of the strangest life trajectories in America in the last 20 years is that of Rudolph Giuliani. You knew this was coming, right? And, <laughs> as soon as, as soon as you, I mean, I hear it in your tone, right? I have to explain to my students now, right? My students who are, you know, roughly 18 to 22 years old, right? That who Rudy Giuliani was in 2001 and how he was perceived. And yes, I, you know, I'm a sociologist, so I perceived him through this sort of cynical political yeah. sociological lens, but, but he, you know, Oprah called him America's mayor. 
And that's what I tell them, right? Um, that there was this moment where he was known in that way. And, and yes, very strange. And it's not because he was calling for war or, yeah. or I don't remember it. And I, and I wonder, and I linger on this because um, actually I was watching with my son recently, there's a, a series that Annenberg produced in the 1990s called Ethics in America. It's, it's fantastic. It's still great. And they take on big issues and conversations. And there was one of these, and there was really, this is from the nineties and there was Rudy Giuliani. And I said, I said to my son, I said, you know how that, that, who that is? He's like, no, who is that? I was like, that's Rudy Giuliani. He's like, he didn't, <laughs> he couldn't comprehend it. It was the same person. And I think people, if you went back and looked at the, the, the speeches, the eulogies, I mean, he, he did funerals um lots of them what what kind of texts did he use what um what kind of mm, analogies or or images or things did he try to evoke in the way that he was interpreting and consoling yeah. from september 11 yeah you know it's it's an interesting thing so rudy giuliani is the mayor who we associate with 911 because he was mayor on 911 and he did he did funerals all day every day for for months right that was that was the space that he inhabited um, but he left office in in December, you know, in December at the at the end of yeah. that year, right? And so he was the 9/11 mayor for for a few months. And right. so I'll say a couple of things in response to that. No, maybe 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 he wasn't calling for war in the explicit way that members of the Bush administration were. But if you read his reflections on that period and then read his rhetoric from that period, the person he was channeling was Winston Churchill. And he writes about mm. reading Winston Churchill's writings on World War II and thinking about um, New York after 9-11 as analogous to London during the Blitz. And, mm. you know, so I think he is channeling in that moment the language of war, but more than that, the language of this dualistic kind of existential conflict between good and evil. Mm -hmm. And then Bloomberg takes office and you, we can talk about all sorts of yeah. you know, problems that I have with Bloomberg. But one thing that he does that I think is really important for the survival of the tragic mode in relation to September 11th is that he actually does try to depoliticize the annual commemorations um, at the uh, New York site. And so he says political leaders can come, but you're not going to make a speech here. Um, and so you can stand solemnly and respectfully. You can get up and read a text that we agree upon, but, um, but you can't get up and tell the story of the war on terror and your role in it. And that does seem to me a, a really profound decision in the history and memory of September 11th. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Christina Simcoe today. And let's, um, we'll have to leave Rudy alone for a minute in Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did want to ask you that question. Let's talk about Confederate monuments. I mean, this period of time that we're in, I mean, we talked about 20th anniversary, well, we'll talk in a minute about the 20th anniversary, but the invocation of September 11 and Katrina and many other disasters as a reference point for COVID, and then there's COVID itself. And then Black Lives Matter protest emerges in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah. And statues, which seemingly could never come down, start to come down. And they're not only Confederate ones. I mean, they pulled the Rizzo statue down in Philadelphia, for crying out loud. Yeah. 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 So couple of things. One, yes, it is true that during the pandemic, during during COVID, during this moment, there has been 
tremendous momentum for removing statues. I do think it's important to acknowledge the ways in which that builds on a longer trajectory of momentum. So um, first of all, long histories in local communities of organizing at a grassroots level for the removal of, of monuments. And there's a great, if you have show notes, I can send you this, this great page that some folks at UNC Chapel Hill put together about the history of resistance to their so-called Silent Sam statue that finally came down um, during the COVID era. So there are those longer histories, but at a, at a national level, there's also, I think, a very clear trajectory um, of chipping away at um, these Confederate monuments. First, um, in 2015, so with a, a series of um, disasters, crises, catastrophes of, of various sorts. Um, in 2015, um, the horrific shooting at an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. That's where you really start to see some of the flags coming down and along with them, some of the first statues to come down in this era, in this moment. Um, and then of course, the so-called Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, um, which resulted in the death of Heather Hare, one of the counter protesters there. And you see another wave of removals. Um, and so I think there, there are these longer trajectories of activism that make what has happened in the COVID moment possible. But I've been thinking a lot about the intersection of race and political consolation lately mm -hmm. and the, the ways in which um, so many, not all, but a vast majority of the key moments in American political consolation have been centered around white suffering, right? Um, suffering that at least uh, was born by white folks in, in the United States. And I think you know, in the COVID moment, given, and, and here I will invoke numbers, right? Here I will, um, I will say that the, the quantification has been really crucial um, of showing from the early stages of the pandemic that this virus has disproportionately impacted communities of color um, and that the legacies of the past are something that we um, that we bear differently in our physiology and biology um, because of these inherited traumas and their impact on our susceptibility to disease in part, right? right? Um, and that becoming so visible, um, I, I think did change the landscape of possibility and really built on all of this earlier activism led by Black communities and communities of color um, that coalesced into a, a, a very different um, landscape, both physically, um, right, in terms of monuments coming down, but also in terms of the, the landscape of possibility for um, the future and what the future of our, you know, discourse of consolation and our understanding of what kind of suffering and whose suffering constitutes American suffering, national suffering um, looks like. Were you finding a layering in, in the rhetoric? So when people were talking about Black Lives Matter, making speeches, invoking use, usable pasts there, mm -hmm. and even at the moments when, when monuments were coming down, was there also discourse about health 
woven into that. I've been trying to find this. I'm trying to understand the pandemic as a sort of a, a larger frame within which many important sort of moments of disaster memorial are happening mm -hmm. in real time. Yeah, yeah. No, I do think that's true. And I, I will say as a caveat, I haven't made a systematic study of discourse in that through that lens. But anecdotally, when I think about the, the moments that I've paid attention to uh, where monuments have come down or where monuments have been prominently contested, I do think that of late there has been a layering and, and um, uh, COVID has become a prism for expressing exasperation um, mm. with accumulated history. Hmm. Is, is, there, um, is, is there a sort of a standard ritual that has emerged around taking down a statue? And I, and I ask this because I, I've watched as many of them as I could find on YouTube for a project I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was actually timing how long it would often take and sort of taking the putting some times into 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 conversation with one another and sometimes it happens pretty fast i mean it's like you're watching a crowd shot and then and then here's a guy with a chain and then three seconds later it's down in other cases it's part of a more of a civic ritual yeah that goes on so there are different types but i wonder if you've been able to and i, I know this is, would be work in progress but have you been able to draw some generalizations around that that's a great question. And it, it sounds like you've made um, at least as systematic a study of it as I have. So you are just as well positioned to comment, if not better positioned to comment um, than I am. But, no, but I'm not as attentive to the language as you are. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, right, there's the there's the version that is a civic ritual. There's the version that is iconoclasm, right, that is... Um, that's driven by crowd behavior and the pulling down of a, a statue. And the, you know, the first one that I think of is the, the statue of a sort of generic soldier in Durham, North Carolina that got pulled down. It sort of collapsed like a souffle, which um, uh, felt really uh, illustrative um, of both the moment and, and, that, and that history. That's been a really powerful one in, in, my, in my memory. But then of course, I think, it's, it's telling and important to dwell on all of the instances where these monuments have been brought down unannounced under the cover of darkness. And I speak about hope and I speak about possibility and I speak about a changing landscape, but I, I also think um, it is important to dwell as well on the instances where there is an absence of civic ritual. Um, there is an absence of communities coming together in moments of celebration. Again, another loss of celebration because of the continuing presence and legacy of fear, um, fear of violence, um, fear of intimidation, and um, and that, that that has been the case for, for many communities, even into this wave of removals. I think it was an, an even more prominent um, type of removal after Charlottesville in 2017 because of the violence associated with that event in particular. But I think that continues to be one modality. And, and there is, I think, there um, a, a loss of ritual, a loss of ceremony. Yeah. That is such an important insight. And actually, I was going to read, um, and now is the time when I'll do it. Um, and this is actually comes from your book, The Politics of Consolation, in the, in the conclusion. Um, and you're, you're talking again about the, this tragic view or tragic mode that we were discussing a moment ago. And you say it's important not to underestimate the human capacity for coming face to face with ambiguity. 
for coping with uncertainty, for engaging in the reflective self-examination that the tragic view of the world has the capacity to foster. Grappling with difficult history, you write, working to forge a place for it in a common narrative can ultimately lead to the rethinking and reconstruction of collective identities as actors work to adapt narratives to changing circumstances and new insights. I, I really appreciate that. And, and what you've just been describing, um, again, convinces me that, that our thinking about memorials is almost always all wrong because we think about architectural juries Mm-hmm. And we think about ac- educational programs and, and all of that is important. And I don't want to mm-hmm. say that those statues and the names carved in the mm-hmm. stones don't matter, but it's those venues which are often informal or ceremonial mm-hmm. where the ambiguity can live. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the most powerful work of in a mm-hmm. democracy, at least, mm-hmm. uh, that a memorial can foster. So I bring that back to your observation about bringing the statues down at night. Because it kind of forecloses that a little bit mm-hmm. now, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. You know, people ask me sometimes, and sometimes out of frustration, right? That um, out of frustration that I am critical of memorialization processes and critical of the 9/11 memorial and museum in various ways. And they say, "Well, what would you too. suggest?" Well, yeah, what would you suggest? We need that- a support group. You, maybe yeah. there's about ten of us in the world. We're like, I can't, I can't even, I can't even go there myself. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, touching touching one of the these sort of you know sacred objects of contemporary American memory, right? And um, and approaching it, de- desacralizing it, right? A- approaching it yeah. as an object for analysis rather than an object for veneration, right? Um, puts you in a difficult in a difficult spot. But yeah. people people ask me, you know, what what should we do? And um, and and people say, you know. Um, how, how would you run this process, right? And one of the things that I always say to them is, is exactly congruent with what you just said, which is to give these spontaneous or makeshift memorials time to fl- exist and flourish and give people time to work through their grief in shared spaces in a democratic way and to resist the rush to memorialization that we so often engage in now. And people will say to me, oh, but the 9-11 memorial took 10 years to construct. And I say 10 years is nothing, you know, in in the span of history. And 10 years is nothing in terms of our capacity and our need to work through the past. And so, you know, if I were to give advice, which I think is maybe what you're gesturing toward for, COVID memorialization, you know, I want a COVID memorial or COVID memorials, uh, you know, in the plural, uh, that engage with all of the kinds of loss that this era has entailed and that engage with the profound inequities that this era has exposed and that engage with these layered paths that have also come to the surface in this era. And so I really hope that we can give it time. I hope that it isn't, that it doesn't sort of fade away like the memory of the 1918 pandemic, right? Um, I hope that giving it time wouldn't or doesn't um, cause that sort of forgetting to happen. But I do hope that we can um, allow some space for these 
deeply democratic, spontaneous, makeshift kinds of memorials and the working through that they allow to, to flourish. Uh, last night, I talked with um, Alex Goldstein, who's the founder of the Faces of COVID Twitter um, site. And I talked with Kristen Urquiza, whose father died in, um, of COVID, and she's founded Marked by COVID. And there are two, I think, of the quite important in the United States. Um, people who are demanding this, what you're talking about, uh, um, yeah. to keep the question open. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it by, um, by narrative. They're doing it. Um, I mean, Alex was talking about the fact that he has now shared 7,000 life stories. Wow. Uh, yeah. Now we're approaching a million deaths and that's an undercount in the United States. So it's an infinitesimally small number, but it, it's so impressive as a, as a quantity of stories mm -hmm. of life mm -hmm. and death. And I think that does a lot of work and he doesn't even politicize around. I mean, when he talks one-on-one -on -one with you, he'll talk about what he means. He's just, these are the people, this is their life. And he lets it do that work and it does powerful work. No, and, and I think we need as a society, as a world, to, to sit with that, to sit with those stories, to dwell in those stories, to just allow them to wash over us um, so that we can begin to try to comprehend what we've lost. I have one kind of last question for you, and it's, um, it's not an easy one to answer, but I wonder um, if you don't... If you continue to do memorials poorly, and I'm being normative here, but um, does democracy or how does democracy suffer? I, I mean, I'm worried. We talk a lot in this country right now about the threat to democracy, um, very real threat and slip to authoritarianism in ways that have surprised even historians like myself. And, and I see disaster memorialization is actually very central to that. Um, I think I'm Again, sometimes I feel like I have a hard time explaining to people why I feel that, but I think it's, it has something to do with both individual uh, um, pent up frustrations that come from individual trauma that's not resolved mm -hmm. and the lack of collectivity that's made possible through, through sense making and disaster memorialization. And I think there's a, I guess my concern is there's a cumulative impact here. And I really worried that we're, we're missing out on what we're, we're not seeing here is that not memorializing COVID appropriately is going to actually have an impact on whether or not our next election works well and goes beyond that. Mm -hmm. I, it's not even a question. It's just something I wanted to share with you as a thought, because I feel like that's it's some of that is informed by my reading of your work and, and um, September 11. And I wonder if you've been grappling with that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, as, as maybe as a citizen more than as a scholar, right. Um, I, I am in so many ways much more comfortable being in the role of <laughs> dealing with a, a past that has been cast into memory that, that I try to point out is not just a memory, but a thing that's still alive in the present, right? So we think about the removal of Confederate monuments and the rise of Black Lives Matter, what people are pointing out there is that these monuments are themselves playing a role in perpetuating the history and legacies of enslavement in the United States. Um, when we talk about 9-11 as something that is firmly in the past, 
um, I want to point people to to your work, right, about the reverberations of 9-11 and um, the the ways in which the death count um, transcends um, that which is acknowledged. And I want to point to um, all of the losses cumulatively um, that have been born of that moment that is often portrayed as a singular moment. And I want to point most of all recently to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and all of the losses made visible um, in that moment from a period of now over 20 years, right? Um, I, am less, I am less comfortable um, dealing with the memorialization of a past that is not yet past, right? Um, and thinking about thinking about what what that means. But I but I do think that for those who are involved, who are invited to be involved, who are elevated as voices in constructing official memory of COVID nineteen, um, I just want to issue an invitation to engage with the lessons of our recent memorials and and maybe most of all with the lessons of 9-11 memorials um, because of their prominence, because of the extent to which they've been sacralized, um, not because the events are comparable as some people made them out to be in the beginning, but because I do think there is nevertheless some lesson to be learned about um, how to memorialize in a democracy that is fiercely striving to remain a democracy. Just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID Calls and you've been listening to Restoring Memory, a special series of COVID Calls episodes leading up to the two-year anniversary of COVID Calls, which actually is here today. Um, and as we move towards the launch of the COVID Calls Digital Archive, which is coming here in the next couple of days. And I want to thank my guest, Christina Simcoe, um, we had to work to get the scheduling uh, on this, and I'm so glad that we were able to do it. And uh, the timing was really perfect because you've left us with some really big things to think about. Um, love your work. Uh, best of health to you. And um, thanks a lot for what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. And we will see you next time on COVID Calls, which is actually coming up in just a few minutes. Please stay on and join my discussion with Aksa Sheikh and Sonali Fade about COVID in India. We'll get an update from both of them. See you next time on COVID Calls. 